and welcome to the Polemical Brothers podcast with Tim Rudy and Anthony Blackwell. Today we're going to talk about uh, why is it that the French are so commonly known as cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to say that with a straight face. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it really is. Um, obviously, this phenomenon was uh, made made popular through uh, The Simpsons and other pop culture uh, references, media, shows, video games. But where it really stems from is uh, World War II, isn't that right? Yeah, I would I would say the the quotation, the cheese eating surrender monkey quotation that was popularized by the Simpsons in '95, um, was definitely taken as a as a pejorative slur um, against the French uh, for their unwillingness to join the Americans, your compatriots in their invasion of Iraq. Obviously, in the popular imagination, you had the uh, the very quick. Um, surrender in World War II during the fall of France and and, and, and some other late 20th century um, poor performances by the French military um, in the popular imagination that seemed to lend a credibility. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think it that definitely is the, the main reasoning behind it. But what doesn't seem justified is uh, how big of a joke it's become on the internet. Um, if you type uh, cheese-eating surrender monkey memes into google images or if you type it into reddit you'll see tons and tons of pretty hilarious memes let's do that okay pull up some memes there let's let's have a look see if any of them are, are in fact funny how old were you in 95 uh let's see i was six years old yeah i was 12 and i remember this episode um i think it was called round springfield and i laughed i have to admit it's funny i don't remember the episode i mean i didn't i watched the simpsons uh, fairly regularly, but I guess I was probably already 10, 11, 12 by that time. Um, but yeah, I don't, even on reruns, I don't remember this episode specifically. I don't know why it's funny. I think it's just the image of a monkey eating cheese in the act of surrendering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, there's something like, a, what is it? It's like a caricature of, a, of the French army, you would say. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, and according to the Urban Dictionary, uh, it's 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 attributed to, to the French collectively as a whole nowadays. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I guess in my mind, I was thinking mostly about the French military, but people seem to have applied this joke to the, the French population as a whole. Seem, um, seems a bit unfair, no? Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the memes we have here is uh, a picture of a, a rifle. It looks like a World War II era rifle. And uh, of course, in the classic meme style, it has a text on top and a text on bottom. And the top text says, for sale, French World War II rifle. The bottom text says, never fired, dropped once. <laughs> for sale, French World War II rifle, never fired, dropped once. Sort of reminds me of the, uh, the, the Hemingway uh, shortest story. I don't even know if it's a, a true story. Um, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. What, what are some others? This is a good one. Okay, so we have three images. We have uh, two old-fashioned British pugilists um, posturing in front of each other uh, with the Union Jack. And it says, Pugilism, the martial art of fighting with the fists. That sort of reminds you of Robert Downey Jr. in that uh, Sherlock uh, Holmes remake. Then you have a picture of two gents in the middle of a judo fight with the Japanese flag and it says judo the martial art of grappling 
followed by Tim. <laughs> the third image is uh, just a, seems like to be a young man uh, jumping over a railing, doing parkour in the city, and it says, parkour, the martial art of running away. <laughs> I have to say, they're funny. They're funny. My sympathies, I must admit, I'll wear my biases on my sleeve, are with the French, as you know we will see in the course of the, the episode. But uh, that's funny. Yeah, and I think if you if you think the meme is funny, if you think it's funny uh, that the French are surrender monkeys, or if you've made a joke about the French being weak or surrendering, I think you really have to admit to yourself the only reason you laugh at those jokes is because you're probably not French. <laughs> and 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 we have to say when we say that you know this term, this derogatory term, this meme. This uh, quotation from The Simpsons has gone viral and we talk about its popularity around the world. We we really mean in the Anglo-American world. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I just pulled up another meme actually uh, about the French and coronavirus. And I remember when the coronavirus broke out um, in uh, March. Well, it really shit started to hit the fan in uh, March 2020. And um, I remember uh, before it really got bad in the States, there was a uh, some sort of right-wing radio host. It wasn't Rush Limbaugh, but some other right-wing radio host uh, in the States said, oh, look, the French um, have declared war on coronavirus because, of course, uh, Emmanuel Macron, in his one of his first speeches to the nation, he said, uh, nous sommes en guerre, we're, we're at war with coronavirus. And um, so the right-wing radio host said, look, the French declared war on coronavirus. I guess that means they're going to lose. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was kind of funny, but in the end, um, you know, America ended up, doing much more poorly um, against coronavirus than the French. The French uh, seem to be holding their own. It's like a lot of stereotypes. Sometimes you encounter one and you just simply don't understand uh, the reasons for it. Um, I, I know there's one about Scottish people. They're supposed to be mean, as in cheap. Oh, yeah. But had, you, had you ever heard that? No, I hadn't. I remember you uh, mentioned it before, but um, I guess because I'm American, we don't talk about Scottish people as much as you guys do. But no, I hadn't heard, uh, heard that. But I, I mean, I knew it. I said it as a joke to, to a Scottish friend. <laughs> Pretty mean-spirited joke. But uh, I myself, I, I don't know why that, um, why that uh, stereotype exists. I'm guessing it has something to do with the, the, you know, the Protestant Presbyterian work ethic uh, yeah. and, and their frugality. But... Um, yeah, and, and we, we'll get to that later. Um, we definitely had planned to talk about uh, why, why particularly we pick on the French with this meme. Like, why has it become so popular and widespread that they're somehow weak or, or surrender monkeys versus, you know, why, why isn't this meme applied to uh, other victims in World War II, like the Chinese or the Poles, or you can go on and on down the list of the victims in World War II. Why was it particularly uh, applied to the French? And we'll talk about that later. I'm just looking at another meme here. Okay, so we've got three pictures. We have a picture of a very proud American Marine in front of the, uh, the U.S. flag. And uh, the text reads, American salute. And then we have a picture of Prince Harry, I think. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> Saluting, okay, very somberly. Um, and the caption reads, British salute. And then you've got a, a black and white image of a fairly pathetic looking soldier with both hands up, palm faced out, obviously in the act of surrendering and the caption reads French salute <laughs> brutal yeah like the Americans and British have never never ever surrendered I guess all right let's 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 maybe go back to 1995 and we'll just you know 
give our listeners a little context on the, the Simpsons quotation. How about that? Sounds good. So, you know, Tim was a kid. Tim was a wee baby. And I was only 12 years old in 95 when Ken Keeler uh, first coined the expression um, cheese-eating surrender monkeys uh, for an episode of The Simpsons. Okay, The episode of The Simpsons was called Round Springfield. Um, but apparently Keeler later admitted that it wasn't intended as a political statement. Um, and it's funny that if you listen to the French dubbed version of that same episode, it's curious how they how they decide to translate that, you know, fairly uh, confusing um, reference to them. Um, the French version uh, on mainland France on television was Rendez-vous sans manger de fromage, meaning literally surrender you cheese eating monkeys, which to be fair is fairly accurate. Yeah, it's certainly an accurate translation, but... Um... Sometimes jokes just don't translate well. I wonder how the French audience perceived it at that, at that time. Uh, like, why why are they calling the French monkeys? Like, we're monkeys now? I thought we were frogs. What's going on here? Do you have anything on the, the French reaction or the American reaction at that time? Like, did Keeler receive any backlash for it? So Keeler confirmed that he, uh, he coined the term and considers it his best contribution to the show. Um... And Al Jean, one of the producers, he commented that the staff never expected it to become such a popular um, trope. Um, I mean, we were only recently watching or playing the uh, the Simpsons computer game, and there is an entire uh, segment on um, on the French in World War Two. I think uh, Homer and and his clan um invade invade france uh, at on d-day with uh you know grandpa simpson as a, as a younger man leading the expedition and it's uh yeah it's, it's quite hilarious it seems to have taken a, a life of its own this quotation um but it wasn't until 2003 well the year 2000 1999 i think um there was a, an article by a fairly right-wing american columnist named Jonah Goldberg, I think it was in the National Review, and the article was titled, Cheese-Eating Surrender Monkeys from Hell. I don't know where the from hell part came. I seem to have missed that in the show. Um, and he fairly lays into the French in this article. I'm not familiar with the National Review as a publication. Can you, you know, give me a little 101 on, uh, on the National Review? The National Review is an almost comically conservative newspaper. Uh, they've been around for a long time. They wear their bias on their sleeve, um, and they don't even attempt to cater to uh, the centrists, let alone the left. Um, so they are really the go-to newspaper for the staunch, staunch uh, American conservative who wants to totally um, block out any of the mainstream media or any sort of objective point of view uh, when they just want to um, you know, read something that is going to reinforce their ideals and uh, what they should be thinking from a conservative point of view, not from an, an objective one. So, um, you know, people call it a, an echo chamber or a hive mind, uh, something like that. It's, it really is something. I mean, if you read this newspaper, it is just, wow, you know, because they're good at it too. They're really, um, they're extremely well-spoken. The quality of their writing is just phenomenal. Um, 
but the the extent of their bias is shocking and uh, quite impressive, actually. <laughs> well, well, this article, it's, it's quite famous. It's quite known, you know, in this context of uh, the Simpsons quotation and in the context of uh, anti-French sentiment. If you do a Google search on cheese eating surrender monkeys, this will be one of the first um, one of the first uh, search results on, on, on Google. Um, and like you said, it's extremely biased, extremely personal, and um, very smug. Um, I think Goldberg, you know, at this point in history, was writing an article a week in editorial, and um, you can you can picture him just sitting on his sitting on his sofa, a self-admitted uh, armchair general, and just laying into the French selectively. And I doubt the factual basis of some of his claims, which. Again, we'll, we'll we'll get to during the episode. Just to give you a few quotations, um, he he begins his invective against the French by citing the structural unemployment rate of twelve percent, claiming that there are enough Frenchmen on with time on their hands that they will read this article and take offense and lay into him. Uh, quote: I, for one, do not want to be beaten up and inundated with correspondence from snooty Frenchmen like an Algerian applying for asylum. End quote. And he uh, he sort of uh, paradoxically or ironically rather he ironically refers to the French joie de guerre. Okay, obviously a play on their parent joie de vivre, um, and their joie de guerre is uh, surrendering. I would imagine. Um, so he cites a number of reasons which apparently justify um, the the quotation "cheese eating surrender monkey." Um, the fact that they surrendered Paris to the Germans uh, reportedly without firing a shot. Um, he also referred to a number of other World War II incidents, uh, Operation Torch, their performance in Operation Torch. Um, he conveniently obfuscates the Free French Forces and the Vichy French Forces, um, which kind of supports any argument he chooses to make because if he if he wants you to, to deride the french and there is an honorable example of french conduct on the free french forces side he'll simply switch sides and uh, use the vici performance um, to justify his slur on the french ignoring selectively the tremendous achievements and performance by the by the free french forces um he blames the french for sticking um his word uh, the u.s with vietnam absolving, I would assume, all American uh, responsibility in their conduct of the war. Um, Charles de Gaulle, uh, his attitude to NATO post-war. Um, and he, he, ends his, he ends his invective. Can, sorry, can we talk about Charles de Gaulle for a second? Sure. What do you want to say? D does he, can we blame him in any way for uh, this meme or this joke? getting developed later on like is it was his arrogant attitude during world war ii i mean of course we'll get into world war ii later but just real quickly on charles de gaulle um can he be blamed in any way for this joke this unfortunate joke that has uh, beset the french well i think the joke works because it is funny so we have to look into ourselves and ask us ask ourselves why is it funny and it's funny because i mean it's predicated on the fact that the french do have this um, you know, there is this stereotype, which I will controversially say is based on 
experience, some experience of a haughty, arrogant, proud, irascible um, aspect of their character. And Charles de Gaulle uh, embodied all of that. Um, and, you know, you, you can you can explain his you know, demeanor and his character as well. I mean, he he was responsible for, I suppose, rallying a defeated nation, um, a nation that counted among its defeated citizens, um, many collaborators. Um, they were getting blood on their hands um, by collaborating, um, blood of their own countrymen, blood of their Jewish citizens, uh, who they turned in um, into Hitler's Germany. Um, and he had to conduct that war from abroad. He was based in England, I believe. Yeah. And he had to vie for power among Roosevelt and Churchill. Okay. And, and also, I was just going to say, uh, I remember when the Americans, the British and the Canadians, to some extent, uh, liberated France during the La Libération, uh, in 44. I remember, wasn't it Charles de Gaulle who insisted uh, on, you know, he was speaking with uh, Churchill and uh, Roosevelt at the time, he insisted that the French soldiers walk into Paris first before the British and the Americans. Are you aware of that? Yeah, I heard that. I imagine it works uh, on a PR level, you know. Um, and I guess Charles de Gaulle's authority among the French was not... Uh, was not fully established. I mean, he was largely admired and he was the most suitable candidate, but for a post-war construction, I, I, I would imagine that the, the other allied leaders wanted to give him as much credibility as possible and establish him quickly as, a, as the rightful, uh, you know, de facto leader of France um, if they wish to uh, push forward with the, uh, with the war effort. Right, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. I'm just wondering if that was maybe the uh, the beginning of this uh, resentment for the French, like these American and British soldiers are sitting there thinking, like, "Gosh, we just uh, risked our lives, lost half our, half our buddies, and uh, this guy is going to insist that the French walk in, you know, that that the French march into the city first. You know, I know it was done for strategic reasons, but it. It feels like de Gaulle is trying to say or, or trying to send the message that only the French are capable of saving themselves. The French are too proud to be saved by the Americans and the British. I guess we have to remember, I'm trying to put myself and empathize. I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a Charles de Gaulle or a Frenchman, and I'm trying to empathize with them. And uh, I, I, can, I can understand that as an ally allied to the Brits and the Americans who, who both share a common language and to a certain extent a common culture and heritage. I mean, they are the odd one out. Yeah, that's the language and cultural uh, barrier will never be fully uh, brought down. I know one thing that Americans tend to um, think positively about the French in uh, is in terms of the, the revolution, the Revolutionary War. I think enough Americans, not all Americans, but quite a few understand that the French were allies during the Revolutionary War. They were our first allies. Of course, it was just an alliance of convenience for the French. You know, uh, we want we want the British. Uh, we want bad things for the British. The Americans are fighting the British, so ipso facto, we're uh, on the American side. But 
That being said, I think there is certainly for Americans that like history and uh, or, or maybe even enjoyed history class, not, not necessarily people that are history buffs, um, they'll know that the French really did help uh, during the Revolutionary War. So in, in that sense, the, the British will actually never be on the same level as the French. They, we can never say the British were our first allies. It was the French, in, in fact. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, it's not a, it's not a new stereotype either. Um, I think Samuel Johnson uh, once said, a Frenchman must be always talking whether he knows anything of the matter or not. An Englishman, however, is content to say nothing when he has nothing to say. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a new rivalry, rivalry. And I mean, you and I both know as Anglo-Americans, well, as an Irishman and as an American living in France, you know, never mind the American side of the story, but there is a lot of, you know, sporting competition between the, the English and the French, which obviously has its own history, um, going back to the Hundred Years' War and, and so on. People still cite these things today at rugby games. It's, uh, it's quite incredible. As an, as an Irishman growing up, I personally didn't hold or hear or know of any of these negative stereotypes towards the French. Of course, cheese-eating, yes. Snooty, yes. Arrogant, well, as I got older, you know, you learn more about these stereotypes. But uh, as a kid, at the time of the Simpsons episode, 1995, the uh, relationship between the French and surrendering did not make sense to me. I laughed because it was a funny a funny setup to a joke. And uh, I laughed more at groundskeeper Willie's attempt to teach French, to be honest. Um, but the Irish-French relationship um, is a very old one. Um, obviously, as a European country and a, a close neighbor, uh, there's there have been a lot of ties over the centuries and uh, a lot of uh, military, mutual military, um, you know, experience. I think, uh, you know, not being European, um, I don't really know what it's really like to, to grow up in a European country. And, and uh, you know, I think Americans call Europe, we, we, you know, we call it Europe. We, even though for Europeans, all the different countries are, are much, uh, you know, despite the European Union, they're very much individual countries with their own people, own language, own culture. Um, and, you know, we understand that as Americans, but we see Europe as a kind of a single entity. You know, when we say, I'm going to Europe, oh, where in Europe are you going? And then we just list off different cities as if they're all um, different cities in the same country. But now that I've been living in Europe, well, specifically France, for nine years, definitely my, my outlook has changed. You know, I say France now a lot more when I would have said Europe. You know, I say I live in France or uh, it's like this in France, when, whereas before I might have said Europe. Um, so, yeah, as I'm curious to know, actually, as an, as an Irishman, uh, you, you've talked to me a lot about British history because British and Irish history are so relevant to each other. Um, but is, do, do the Irish, uh, you know, do they have some sort of, any sort of internal love or sympathy for the French just based on their, uh, their position as a, as a historical adversary to the British? I can only speak for myself. Um, you'd probably encounter a variety of, of, of opinion in Ireland and among Irish people, depending on who you asked. But, uh, 
But personally speaking, I think so. Um, less so for their, uh, for the fact that they were also adversaries to the British, but indirectly they they offered an alternative um, to to the British um, in terms of opportunities for Irish. I mean, several centuries ago, um, ever since the defeat of the Irish. Um, I suppose chieftains, the the tribal leaders at the beginning of the um, at the end of the 16th century, beginning of the uh, 17th century, um, when the Irish chieftains um, by and large fled to the continent, um, they were ultimately defeated by Queen Elizabeth, um, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, in a in an episode in Irish history known as the Flight of the Earls, and many of them fled to the courts of the European powers. The Spanish, the French, and so on, and fought in their wars. And many Irish legions were created in these uh, foreign armies. Um, the Spanish, at first, was probably the major power, but as that power waned in the, the middle of the 1600s, um, and and the French took precedence. I mean, there was an Irish legion, um, a de dedicated Irish legion in the French armed forces up until the um, the fall of uh, Bonaparte. I think around 1815. Um, for those Irish people who didn't, you know, wish to align themselves with with the British system, um, because in the British Army there was also enormous numbers of of Irish soldiers. I think I don't have the exact statistic, but in the army fielded on the battle at the Battle of Waterloo, an an enormous I think more than half, significantly more than half of the of the soldiers. The infantry were, were, were Irish, were, were of Irish nationality. Um, so, and I, I think I, I read somewhere now, please fact check me, but I think when the British Navy sent a squadron to the island of Montserrat in the Caribbean, the entire flotilla was, was Irish. I mean, under a, a crown flag, but uh, it was an Irish... It was an Irish flotilla, uh, a man flotilla, and uh, even you have even uh, the Duke of Wellington, um, Arthur Wellesley. I mean, again, an an, an Irishman, you know, albeit a reluctant one. But people's ideas of what it meant to be an Irishman or an Englishman at the time, um, or a, or a British person, uh, the the boundaries were blurred. Some people didn't see the distinction. You know, it's not you know the the, the history of Irish history in the twentieth century is essentially an Irish Republican history. Um, which really sets the tone for how the Irish see themselves. But um, but back to what I was saying, the French at the time, you know, offered an alternative to this British, um, you know, way of life. I mean, you could go, you know, you could either be an Irish nationalist, uh, an Irish Republican, um, or you could align yourself with the interests of the empire, the British Empire, or alternatively, you could go abroad and, uh, and, and, and forge a future um, under France. I mean, you know the brandy, the cognac Hennessy, um, that was created by uh, one of these soldiers who left Ireland in the 1600s. A Hennessy, you know, that was his name. He's an example of one. I think the I think the first French president of Irish extraction was a uh, president. Uh, I think it was MacMahon, MacMahon, uh, in the in the 19th century, in the late 19th century. Very cool. So let's get into the history now a little bit. Now that we've um, we've talked about the meme, we've talked about the joke, and um, 
it is really funny, you know, I think it's kind of a funny joke, uh, but like I said, you probably only think it's funny because you're not French. Um, when the joke is, if the joke was about Americans, I would probably try to find every reason I could um, as to why the joke is untrue or not funny or doesn't merit all this popularity. Um, so let's let's go ahead and do that for the French now because I think, you know, if you're going to look at any argument, you've got to play devil's advocate for at least a little bit. So um, I'll give my take on the, the history of the French military and why this might have happened. Um, I'll go through medieval French history, uh, the, uh, the revolutionary French period, and finally World War I, World War II. Um, just briefly, I'll, I'll cover, cover those ages very superficially. Uh, and then you can give me your take on uh, what you, where you stand on that. Um, so according to several sources, um, I'm, I'm not sure this is true. It is on it is on Wikipedia, and despite Wikipedia having a bad reputation among some people, uh, studies show that it's pretty good, pretty accurate. Um, out of all recorded conflicts which occurred since the year three three hundred eighty seven BC, so going back uh, going back almost twenty five hundred years, uh, France has fought in one hundred and sixty eight of them. So, of course, when they say conflicts, I'm sure they mean major wars, not just uh, little skirmishes between nations, but major wars where, um, you know, entire uh, kingdoms or empires or countries went to war and uh, there was a clear winner, clear loser at the end. Um, So out of all all of them, uh, out of all those conflicts in the last 2,500 years, France has fought in 168 of them. They won 109, lost 49, and they've drawn 10. So that actually makes France the most successful military power in European history. So not world history, but European history. Um, so it's kind of looking at, you know, if you think of, um, I don't know, a good sports club or uh, a great fighter or something like that, looking at their overall record, France would be uh, the New York Yankees. I think that's a that's a good, um, for the Americans out there, but the New York Yankees are just, you kind of got to say they're the best team, right? Because they've won the most championships, uh, most World Series. So that's France. You know, that's something that if you think the French are pathetic, weak, cheese-eating surrender monkeys, that's something you got to reckon with, you know. They've won the most. Um, so moving on. Um, in in medieval times, uh, France was a very loose ent- entity. Uh, it was mostly just a collection of sort of independent realms that were, you know, you, you had the king in Paris, of course, but or the queen, and... There were vassals all around what is modern-day France, and they paid tribute uh, to the French king. But uh, as I understand it, sometimes, you know, the French king would want to get something done, and the vassals were able to just refuse the king or the queen. You know, they, if, if it wasn't on their agenda as well, um, they could just kind of snub the king or the queen uh, on various issues. So France was not really a cohesive, I guess, entity in, the, in medieval times. And furthermore, they were surrounded by really powerful uh, other kingdoms and realms. They were surrounded by, uh, of course, the Holy Roman Empire in the east. Um, Italy, which was not too cohesive either. Italy was split up into different uh, nation states and, and republic, uh, you know, merchant republics and so forth. Um, so Italy wasn't, was never too big of a threat to the French in medieval times. Uh, but Spain, as soon as Spain uh, was able to conquer, reconquer uh, Iberia, finish off the Reconquista, 
Um, they were a huge power to be reckoned with. And the French were allies with the Spanish and enemies with the Spanish at various times. It wasn't quite like uh, their relationship with the English where they were just sort of, the English and the French were at each other's throats almost nonstop throughout their whole history up until the 20th century. Um, but yeah, so so France had uh, the, the British, the English to the north. Um, I guess it wasn't the British that, at that time, just the English. Um, the, the Spanish to the south and the Holy Roman Empire to the east. So um, France was not a, a powerful, uh, a huge military power in medieval times. However, that all changed in uh, revolutionary France um, uh, during the revolutionary period, which is, of course, the end of the 18th century. Um, it, the French Revolution can be credited to some extent with bringing about modern warfare or, or bringing about the advent of the modern army, modern military power, uh, because um, before the French Revolution, militaries were sort of um they had rigid rigid protocols uh static operational strategy unenthusiastic soldiers and, and aristocratic officer classes um i found in my research so that that sort of military could not compete uh with a post-revolutionary military um the the french revolution uh gave the soldier um sort of a dogma to fight for it gave the soldier uh, something, something to fight and die for, other than just money, uh, which was usually the case. Uh, you know, before in, in medieval times, soldiers were just fighting for, uh, you know, just the ability to keep living and eating. Um, they didn't really have a, a big, um, except for holy wars. Uh, you know, in medieval times, the the soldiers were just mostly fighting for as a job or because they had no other choice. Whereas uh, in revolutionary France, the soldiers were they were fighting for a cause. They they truly believed that. France was under threat uh, in Europe, and that they they had to spread the revolution. This new idea of liberal values and something to live for, you know, really something uh, powerful. So, this this uh, these new ideas sort of obsessed the the mind of the French soldier and um, gave them you know a reason to fight and die. And that, and that was actually a very powerful thing. Um, and not only that, but but numbers, right? So in revolutionary France. Um, the population of France uh, in the 18th century actually skyrocketed, and uh, the revolutionary French army benefited from that. So the French population was 19 million in 1700 and 29 million in 1800, um, which uh, 29 million is less than half the population of France today, uh, but still uh, a massive population. And when you can when you can weaponize uh, the entire population rather than just a few soldiers for hire, uh, you can you can really steamroll your enemies as Napoleon did um, in the revolution. And apparently, uh, I believe I read somewhere that uh, during Na Napoleon's reign, during his, uh, his wars at the beginning of the 19th century, he burned through approximately two to 300,000 soldiers per year. That was the death rate. That was the mortality rate of a French soldier. Yes, yes, and that leads perfectly into this uh, quote, this quote that was made famous to me, uh, by Dan Carlin, uh, whom, whom you probably know if you're listening to this podcast. Um, Napoleon said to the Austrian, to an Austrian diplomat in 1813, you cannot stop me. I spend 30,000 lives per month. So this is just the fact that, you know, you can go ahead and kill my army. You can, you can I can lose battle after battle after battle and still keep coming at you. It's like a boxer with a really strong chin, right? You can you can hit me, you can land your, your best punch right on my chin, right on my nose, and I'll keep coming at you. And at the time, they rarely landed a good punch, at least not until 1812. Right. 
Um, I um, what I think what I think is interesting about this whole slur, um, you know, calling the French uh, cheese-eating surrender monkeys, um, it isn't so much a rational attack on on technical capability, um, and it avoids you know examining the the actual details of of the various campaigns it's 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 really just a genetic argument you know the french inherently are are weak effet um and i think it's i think i think it i think it's worth exploring um some of these campaigns in detail um just to show that in fact they they have been historically a highly militaristic people you mentioned yourself the uh, the number of uh, engagements they've wars they've fought i think since it's uh, since the frankish state i mean i think i read somewhere that despite being ancient by comparison the chinese have fought fewer wars than the french have since its conception i mean when i speak of the inception or conception of france uh, i guess we're dating it back to uh, charlemagne um I provided I provided some quotations earlier that uh, uh, there's one here by Rudyard Kipling, um, you know, obviously a famous British Nobel Prize winning jingoistic uh, writer until World War One when his when his when his son um, was died and I don't believe they ever found his body um, on the on the on the front or in the trenches. I think he was he was fighting for the he was attached to the Irish rifles um, and the quotation is that. The French, quote, carry an edge to their fighting, a precision and a dreadful knowledge coupled with an insensibility to shock, unlike anything one has imagined of mankind. Their business is war and they do their business, end quote. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it, I think if you go back to any period in history before World War II, even just go back as, as recently as World War I, if you're able to go back and ask a German soldier in World War One, you know, are the French pushovers? You know, what do you think he would say? I don't believe they would they would admit to the French being pushovers. And I think honestly, so many of the, the young men mobilized and older men mobilized in, in that war to end all wars, I think by and large they were after the initial flush of motivation, I think they were by and large rather sympathetic about one another there are lots of cases of uh, kindnesses being shown uh, or demonstrated to to their enemy combatants um to the extent that they had to be discouraged because i mean they're not going to butcher their enemy if uh, if they regard them as a human i mean a lot of these people were just caught up in a machine and a mechanism that they couldn't even understand um, its motivations um and they're regular people you know like you or i or any of the listeners, you know, forced into into a murderous scenario against our peers. I I don't think they harbored any any such stereotypes, and I think the conduct of the war would very quickly um, beat that out of them. Sure, sure. And and World War One was, uh, I guess, you could say the performance by the French was maybe the exact opposite of what you'd expect if you just look at World War Two. In, in World War II, the French were defeated in, uh, what is it, six weeks or so, according to Wikipedia. Um, but in World War I, 
I guess it has to be said that the the French fought tooth and nail and won. The the, the French, well, I I'd, I'd like to talk a little later about World War One and in a little more detail. But I mean, yeah, if you if you look at the case of World War One, the battles were fought on French territory. Um, the French lost something akin to five percent of their entire population in that in that battle. Uh, they lost more men than the British, than the Americans who arrived late. And uh, by all accounts, um, according to historians, you know, were fairly badly prepared for um, for the engagement, the engagements that they that they experienced. Um, but to be fair to the Americans, um, their bravery and their honor in combat was noted. Um, it was just the fact that, I mean, America was not the powerhouse it is today or the one it became during World War II. Uh, and it was a fairly inexperienced and novice, novice army. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the French just are geopolitically <laughs> disadvantaged by being a neighbor of, uh, of a militaristic Germany, a militaristic France being a neighbor to a militaristic Germany. I mean, Europe wasn't big enough for the both of them at this time. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so yeah, that um, that about sums up my my history, my my superficial sort of history of the French military. I guess I'll just uh, for those of you listening who need a quick refresher on what happened in World War II exactly to the French, um, they were uh, they were defeated in as I said before, they were defeated in about six weeks by um, the Nazi invasion, what uh, in what is known as the Battle of France. Um, and why and how that happened, uh, Anthony will get into later. But um, essentially, the French just weren't expecting the Germans to do what they did. It was a total surprise for uh, the French that the Germans would, you know, in the beginning of a war, pull such a risky move. Um, they essentially uh, went around the Maginot Line, through Belgium, through neutral Belgium, uh, into uh into france and they they did did so in such a way um that uh was really risking a lot for the germans i mean if the french were had able to had been able to uh anticipate what the germans were going to do the french could have ended the war very quickly there actually um in 1940 uh for the germans uh or if not ended the war severely crippled the germans and made their defeat much much more easy for the other powers um, but of course that didn't happen. The German surprise attack was successful and, uh, France fell. And, um, I think the one last thing I want to say about World War II, which you touched on a little bit already, Anthony, is that World War II is just the, the mindset that the French had in World War II just cannot be, um, unlinked from World War One. right? You, you cannot talk about World War II in a vacuum because World War II was just, for the French, it was basically World War One Part Two, right? So it was, it was in World War One. Like I said, the French fought tooth and nail. They really got their clocks cleaned, uh, and they they fought so bravely and won, but at such a terrible cost that, um, you know, the loss of life was still very much a recent memory in World War Two, and the the reason for why why are we doing this again? Uh, you know, the the famous slogan um, in World War Two for the French was why why die for Danzig you know pourquoi mourir pour Danzig um 
you know, why, why are we dying on a battlefield just because the Germans want to get their city back that, you know, is historically German anyway? Like, what do we care? Um, so I think it's the, the increased... Um, the, once bitten, twice shy. Once bitten, twice shy, that's and, right. <laughs> and they weren't alone. The British didn't want to fight either. I mean, and now Chamberlain's peace in, peace in our times is, uh, is, is laughed at, which, uh, although having read the, the Robert Harris, you know, fictionalized account of, of the Munich Agreement, I have a lot more sympathy for, um, for Neville Chamberlain. He, he did what he believed was right at that time uh, to prevent another bloodbath. Okay, they thought that war, World War I, was going to end all wars. And, 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 the, and a terrible irony is if the Allies had have launched a campaign against Hitler's Germany over Sudetenland, um, which Chamberlain was trying to avoid, they probably or they may have had the time to uh, dismantle that ticking time bomb. But anyway, counterfactuals. <laughs> um, we spoke about the fact that the, uh, the Simpsons quotation was coined in 1995. Goldberg, for the National Review, he wrote that uh, rather horrible, mean-spirited article in 1999. And it wasn't until the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the French... Uh, refusal to join uh, that um, enterprise, which in hindsight was was a rather wise decision, and they weren't alone in it. Um, the Belgians, the Germans also refused. But for some reason, the French attracted most of Anglo-American, particularly American ire at this time, probably for those reasons that we talked about, how it's so easy to make fun of the French, really. Uh, their their values, their their characteristics are sort of counterpoint to you know the, the characteristics of uh, you know straight shooting straight talking um, that the Americans seem to to admire those self-reliant virtues etc um, in 2003 at the time of the invasion of Iraq um, it, it was interesting because the articles started to take a different tone um, you had articles of the same tone as Goldberg's, but more measured because they were in publications such as the, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Um, but that started to give some credence or credibility to this uh, slur that the French were cheese-eating surrender monkeys, even using, even using this, uh, this quotation as well. Um, but interestingly, they also seem to pinpoint the, uh, you know, the justifications for this um, for this insult in historical uh, in historical arguments or episodes, um, in a Washington Post article, the author basically accused the French Foreign Affairs Minister Dominique de Villepin um, as you know demonstrating demonstrating this cowardly uh, laissez-faire character that uh, the French sort of displayed for the world to see in 1870 in the Franco-Prussian War. And in the Wall Street Journal, um, I believe the editor Max Booth made a similar claim when he said that France has been in decline since about 1875 and simply isn't happy about it. So basically, the French refu refusal to join the Americans in a war in Iraq um, all, all boiled down to um, some sort of uh, hubris that they were no longer top dog in the world and it's for this reason we're making this spiteful decision, you know, to take our football and walk home with it, you know. 
um, which seems to be a, a rather immature, um, you know, statement from an editor of a reputable newspaper, such as the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, it sounds like someone who just got sucker punched. Basically, they were the Americans. I think were hoping the French would be on their side, and when they found out they weren't, they had sort of a, a reaction someone might have when uh, when you get unexpectedly uh, dissed. Yeah, it's like they're trying to rationalize in retrospect um, their irrational um, dislike for 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 an entire people. Um, and I was actually surprised to to read similar opinions expressed by Christopher Hitchens and by uh, the economist Thomas Friedman, whom uh, you know, whom I whom I quite admire. I was su- I was surprised from from such rational individuals to read similar criticisms at this time. I guess uh, none of us are immune to um, fallacies, huh? All right, then. I think we've established that Surrender Monkeys uh, really entered um, journalism in the noughties um, around the time of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, which was eight years after it, it, it first was introduced in The Simpsons. Um, and around this time in 2003, I remember there was a Guardian article entitled Wimps, Weasels and Monkeys, the U.S. Media View of Perfidious France. And uh, apparently the French journalists had a hard time uh, translating these, uh, these insults and, and making them understood by the French readership. Um, the New York Post um, described an axis of weasel um, an axis of devious characters, as the French translated it, to which France apparently belonged, I think, along with Germany and Belgium. Um, I have vague memories of this time. Being in Ireland, we didn't share this view of perfidious France. At least, uh, speaking for myself, we didn't. And I remember hearing about freedom fries and stories of French wine being bought and poured out in the streets in the US. I don't know. Can you share your memories of this, of this period? Give us a bit of context. Sure. So in 2003, specifically March 2003, uh, when the uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom began, which I don't think was the name at the time. I think we chose that name a little bit later. Um, We had something a little bit more aggressive in mind at the time. Uh, Anyway, when it began in March 2003, uh, I was 13 years old. And I didn't have too many political leanings when I was 13 years old. Um, But if I had any, they were probably more conservative leaning, I suppose, because you know, uh, uh, growing up in a uh, patriotic setting in America where you say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning um, and it's kind of American patriotism gets drilled into you at a young at a young age, like it does in every country, but um, from what I've heard, maybe a bit more in the United States compared to, uh, say, France or Britain or Ireland. I don't know. Maybe you can uh, answer that later. Um, but what I remember about that time is that the... September 11th attacks were still very much in uh, the recent memory of of all Americans. Um, I think uh, you know it's it's really it's one of those events um, that's difficult to describe. You really had to be there. You had to be you had to be an American. Um, you had to be uh, in the moment to to really understand the uh, the gravity and um, the significance that the September 11th attacks had on Americans. Uh, I remember on the morning of September 11th, my mom was saying, it's like Pearl Harbor. It feels like Pearl Harbor, which of course my mom wasn't, wasn't alive during Pearl Harbor, but that was really the last, uh, sort of event that Americans had to compare it to. 
was uh, Pearl Harbor. And of course, 9-11 is just so much worse than Pearl Harbor in so many ways. Of course, for one, at Pearl Harbor, um, the it was the military being attacked for the most part, not so much civilians. Uh, and of course, you know, that's uh, attacking cities is uh, considered a war crime by most people. Um, whereas, uh, you know, a military committing or, or carrying out a surprise attack on another military is not a war crime at all. It's just a, a brilliant move, right? Um, so, you know, that was the last thing that we had to compare it to was Pearl Harbor, which which doesn't compare at all, you know, is what I'm trying to say. So that's, that's how um, serious and how devastating and how uh, um, really rallying the September 11th attacks were on Americans because we just, it, it had been generations uh, since we lost uh, so, many, so much civilian life on our own soil, if ever, I'm guessing maybe the, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, um, probably quite a few civilians were killed. I'm not sure. I think it was mostly soldiers, though. Um, but uh, it was, uh, you know, the September 11th attacks, I just cannot overstate how rallying and um, unifying that moment was for Americans. So um, to see that uh, in, in March 2003 that the French were not joining us, um, the British were were uh, alongside the Americans. Um, uh, Tony Blair, is it? Yeah, he kind of insisted. I, I heard, I had read that um, George W. Bush actually told Tony Blair, you know, you don't have to join us on this one. Uh, he, George Bush kind of gave him an option, gave him the diplomatic option to back out of the war, and and Bush wasn't gonna rake him over the coals for it. But Tony Blair uh, insisted on joining. I, whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. Don't don't uh, hold me to that. But that's something I'd heard. Um, and so, so to see the French, uh, sort of, um, what we felt like abandoned one of their closest allies in our time of need, uh, was, was really painful at the time. I think it was really, um, insulting, uh, and it was, um, it was kind of, uh, felt like a stab in the back really from the French. Now, um, do you, do you think that the Americans were really thinking straight at this time? Well, that, that's what I'm saying. I think it's uh, the September 11th attacks, maybe, uh, well, I mean, thinking straight, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's the sem We were definitely tilted. We were reeling from being attacked by Al-Qaeda, and uh, we were we kind of, you know, when all you have is a hammer, you go around looking for nails, right? Um, so it was maybe that effect on our minds, but also it was just us thinking, you know, we we've had such a close relationship with the French for, French for centuries. And uh, especially in World War II, we felt like we truly liberated France. Um, of course, historians will, uh, I mean, that's a huge debate as to um, how much America contributed to the liberation of France you know, versus the USSR and the British and so forth, um, and the French themselves, of course. Uh, but you know, to some extent, we felt like we really helped the French out in World War II. In 2003, there were still uh, quite a few veterans, living veterans of World War II, um, who had fought and lost their buddies on French soil. Uh, so I think that was uh, that may have may have contributed somewhat to the overall feeling. But um, as you mentioned uh, when talking about these news articles, it was mostly the conservatives that were um, French bashing, right? I think that the left in America, the liberals in America, were probably doing quite a bit less French bashing, but still some. I think it, uh, the liberals, the, the left, were still mostly on board with the Iraq war at that point. It wasn't until 2004, 2005 that it really started to become controversial. And, and by 2006, 2007, it was uh, apparent that the Iraq war was 
not only a huge blunder, but also um, like a criminal, a, a criminal act. Um, 600,000 civilians were killed in the Iraq war, uh, which to put into context is about one-tenth of the Jews killed in the Holocaust. That's, that's more than the total German and French uh, war dead in the invasion of France in 1940. Yes, and, and I think the Iraq war will, is just a, a footnote for most people. Um, when you look at um, the wars of the 20th century and, and the early 21st century, the Iraq war is, of course, worth, worth mentioning. But uh, yeah, people, I think people don't realize how big a deal that was and how much death resulted in the, the American invasion of Iraq. Yeah. A lot about this time in, in, the, in, the, in the noughties and, and, and this dynamic between Britain, America, and France it uh, it has a lot of uh, echoes with you know de gaulle's problem with the the british and the americans during the war and and after the war during the cold war this sort of um skepticism of a of an anglo-saxon sort of supremacy um in the world um you know uh, over france and other continental powers and uh, de gaulle's sort of need to create a third power um you know on the continent of europe to balance that of the Atlanticism of the the Anglo-Saxons and and of the USSR in the East. Um, it's quite interesting. It's the same dynamic. You asked me whether or not I thought de Gaulle was in some way responsible for the Anglo-American surrender monkey trope. Um, perhaps superficially he conformed to some quintessential French stereotype at uh, Saint-Cyr. Uh, he acquired the nickname of the Great Asparagus <laughs> because of his height, uh, his high forehead and his his, his, his his big Roman nose. Um, and it's true that he was supposed to have been a supremely arrogant and uh, autocratic man. His staff officer at the École de Guerre criticized his, quote, excessive self-confidence, end quote, uh, the way he harshly dismissed the views of others and his, quote, attitude of a king in exile, end quote. Um, his ego reportedly glowed from far off. And whatever positive attributes he, he did possess, um, they were hid under a, quote, cold and lofty attitude, end quote. Um, it's perhaps telling that the, uh, the officers who served under him in the Battle of France, uh, none of them joined him in London. And um, even though some of them did join the resistance in France. Um, in the 1960s, I mean, we're, we're, we're skipping ahead uh, several decades here. Um, but polls determined that he was personally unpopular, too old, too self-centered, too authoritarian, too conservative, and too anti-American, um, ultimately leading to his resignation in the 60s. Uh, but we're getting a ahead of ourselves a little bit there. I mean, there are some pretty justified reasons for Anglo-American antipathy toward de Gaulle. Uh, during the war, he always insisted on retaining full freedom of action on behalf of France, and was constantly on the verge of losing the Allies' support. Um, he had a tendency to view everything from the French perspective. He always had ambivalent feelings about Britain. He spoke better German than English and thought little of the British Army's contribution to the First World War and even less of that of 1939 uh, and 1940. Um, I have a quotation here by de Gaulle, in fact, and uh, I think he quite succinctly... Um, sums up his, his attitudes. I'll read it here. Quote, Never did the Anglo-Saxons, he referred to the English and the Americans as Anglo-Saxons, really treat us as real allies. They never consulted us, government to government, on any of their provisions. For political purpose, 
or by convenience, they sought to use the French forces for their own goals, as if these forces belonged to them, alleging that they had provided weapons to them. I considered that I had to play the French game, since the others were playing theirs. I deliberately adopted a stiffened and hardened attitude. End quote. Uh, Winston Churchill was often frustrated at what he perceived as de Gaulle's patriotic arrogance, but also wrote of his immense admiration for him during the early days of his British exile. Um, a quotation here um, attributed to Churchill uh, reads, quote, He felt it was essential to his position before the French people that he should maintain a proud and haughty demeanor towards perfidious Albion, although in exile, dependent upon our protection and dwelling in our midst. He had to be rude to the British to prove to French eyes that he was not a British puppet. He certainly carried out this policy with perseverance. End quote. In fact, Roosevelt, um, it's alleged, always considered de Gaulle to have been a, a British puppet. Um, de Gaulle described his adversarial relationship with Churchill in these words. Quote, when I am right, I get angry. And Churchill gets angry when he is wrong. We are angry at each other much of the time. End quote. Uh, on one occasion, um, on one occasion in 1941, Churchill was uh, supposed to have spoken to him on the telephone, and De Gaulle said that the French people um, believed that he was a reincarnation of Joan of Arc. Talk about mythomania! To which Churchill apparently reminded him that the English had had to burn the last one. <laughs> um, he was once accused of hating his friends more than his enemies. And de Gaulle himself stated famously that no nation has friends, only interests, which is quite revealing and, to my mind, reminiscent of Margaret Thatcher in the in the eighties. I think she believed. I think I, I think it's. I think she said there is no such thing as society, or something like that. Um, Roosevelt was reluctant to recognize de Gaulle as the leader of France. As I said, he thought he was a, a British puppet. Apparently, he described de Gaulle as an apprentice dictator. Um, after Churchill suggested that de Gaulle request a meeting to improve his relationship with Roosevelt, de Gaulle demanded to know why he should lodge his candidacy for power in France with the American president. Um, even the British and Soviet governments urged Roosevelt to recognize de Gaulle and were outraged that, in fact, Roosevelt, the U.S. president, unilaterally recognized the new Italian government, a former enemy, before de Gaulle's government, um, so that they, in fact, in retaliation, recognized uh, de Gaulle's French government, forcing uh, Roosevelt to do the same in late 44. Uh, Roosevelt managed to exclude de Gaulle from any of the big three conferences, uh, for example, Yalta and at Potsdam. Um, although the decisions made by Stalin, Churchill and Roosevelt in dividing up Europe were of huge importance to France. Um, incidentally, Stalin later commented that, like Churchill and Roosevelt, he found de Gaulle to be awkward and stubborn, Stalin also felt that uh, de Gaulle lacked realism in claiming the same rights as the major powers and didn't really object to Roosevelt's refusal to allow de Gaulle to attend the, the conferences. Um, at the Yalta conference, despite Stalin's opposition, however, Churchill and Roosevelt insisted that France be allowed a post-war occupation zone in Germany and also made sure that it was included among the five nations that invited others to the conference to establish the UN. Um, and according to a Harvard University Press publication, and apparently this is true, Roosevelt had intended to rule France as an occupied territory and to transfer French into China to the United Nations. Um, and there was even an administration um, 
created to oversee this, uh, known as the Allied Military Government for Occupied Territories, or AMGOT. Um, at the Potsdam Conference, uh, to which de Gaulle was not invited, a decision was made to divide Vietnam, which had been a French colony for over 100 years, into British and Chinese spheres of influence. Was de Gaulle paranoid? Um, I think not. Um, even Truman, after Roosevelt, when he took charge of um, the American war effort uh, in '45, is reported as having said, I don't like the son of a bitch. Um, however, de Gaulle was held in high regard by Eisenhower, um, and also Kennedy and Nixon. Uh, subsequently, it was Eisenhower who personally assured de Gaulle that he would be the one to liberate Paris. Um, Eisenhower was impressed by the combativeness of units of the Free French Forces, and he was grateful for the part that they had played in mopping up the remnants of the German resistance. Um, he also detected how strongly devoted uh, many were to de Gaulle, and how ready they were, ex they, they were to accept him as their, as their national leader. Um, Nixon said of him, uh, on the occasion of de Gaulle's funeral, that greatness knows no national boundaries. Um, in the context of the Cold War later, um, de Gaulle espoused his politics of grandeur, um, you know, is the origin of, of Gaullism today, asserting that France as a major power should not rely on other countries, such as the U.S., for its national security and prosperity. Um, to this end, he pursued a policy of national independence, which led him to withdraw from NATO's military integrated command and to launch an independent nuclear development program that made France the fourth nuclear power. Um, de Gaulle also frustrated the, the British and Americans by restoring cordial Franco-German relations to create a European counterweight between the Anglo-American and Soviet spheres of influence. He twice vetoed Britain's entry into the European economic community, uh, which also generated a, a considerable controversy in both North America and Europe. Um, so there were a lot of reasons for the, the Anglo-Americans to dislike de Gaulle, but on closer inspection, um, we get a picture of a much more formidable, if vainglorious man. Certainly not a surrender monkey. Um, as a platoon commander in World War One, de Gaulle was involved in fierce fighting from the outset and uh, received his baptism of fire um, and was among the first to be wounded, receiving a bullet in the knee. Uh, he was later shot in the hand in another engagement. Um, de Gaulle's unit gained recognition for repeatedly crawling out into no man's land to listen to the conversations of the enemy in their trenches. And the information brought back was so valuable that he received the Croix de Guerre as a company commander during the Battle of Verdun, um, while leading a charge to try to break out of a position which had become surrounded by the enemy. He received a bayonet wound to the left thigh after being stunned by a shell and was captured after passing out from the effects of poison gas. He was one of the few survivors of his battalion at the Battle of Verdun. Um, as a commander in the Battle of France in 1940 against the Nazis, his division enjoyed one of France's rare successes, while others suffered defeats elsewhere across the country. When ordered to withdraw, he refused. I mean, that does not sound like the actions of a surrender monkey. De Gaulle's fighting spirit made a strong impression on the British. Churchill is on the record as having called him uh, l'homme du destin, the man of destiny. I think Anglo-Americans belittle De Gaulle and question his um, right to sit at the table with the other big boys. Um, and his right to have led the liberation celebrations in Paris. But I think that's mainly due to our limited knowledge of de Gaulle as a, as a person and of his contribution. We only have that stereotypical um, impression of him, um, those famous images. Um, one telling um, anecdote is apparently during the liberation, this is true, 
Um, de Gaulle was in Notre Dame Cathedral to be received as the head of the provisional government. Um, uh, when loud shots broke out, uh, he he was he was hustled uh, through the door. They tried to hustle him through the door, but de Gaulle shook off um, his savior's hands and uh, apparently never faltered. While the battle began outside, he walked slowly down the aisle of the church of the cathedral, and a BBC correspondent who was present reported, quote. The general is being presented to the people. He is being received. They have opened fire. Firing started all over the place. That was one of the most dramatic scenes I have ever seen. General de Gaulle walked straight ahead into what appeared to me to be a hail of fire, but he went straight ahead without hesitation, his shoulders flung back, and walked right down the center aisle even while the bullets were pouring about him. It was the most extraordinary example of courage I have ever seen. There were bangs, flashes all about him, yet he seemed to have an absolutely charmed life. After, at the Hôtel de Ville, he famously proclaimed, Paris, Paris outraged, Paris broken, Paris martyred, but Paris liberated, liberated by itself, liberated by its people, with the, res with the assistance of the armies of France, with the support and assistance of the whole of France. The enemy is faltering, but he is not yet beaten. He is still on our soil. It will not suffice that we, with the assistance of our dear and admirable allies, will have chased him from our home in order to be satisfied after what has happened, we want to enter his territory as is fitting as conquerors. It is for this revenge, this vengeance, and this justice that we will continue to fight until the last day, until the day of the total and complete victory. End quote. Not a surrender monkey, in my opinion. In 1962, um, he and his wife narrowly escaped an organized machine gun ambush, and apparently, having survived, de Gaulle commented, Il tire comme des cochons. They shoot like pigs. He was always insouciant, always laconic in the face of danger. In Casablanca in 1943, Churchill supported de Gaulle as the embodiment of a French army that was otherwise defeated, stating, quote, de Gaulle is the spirit of that army and perhaps the last survivor of a warrior race, end quote. Churchill supported de Gaulle as he had been one of the first major French leaders to reject Nazi German rule outright, stating, quote, I have never forgotten and can never forget that he, de Gaulle, stood forth as the first eminent Frenchman to face the common foe in what seemed to be the hour of ruin of his country and possibly of ours. End quote. Patan has a fascinating story arc, from a hero of France to a, a collaborationist dictator. It has all the hallmarks of tragic theatre, um, leading to a point, I mean, in, in liter literature it's called a hamarsha, you know, the point in the story where the, the tragic hero makes a tragic, a tragic mistake uh, that seals his fate. And Patan's hamarsha was in 1940. Um, you know, he, he kind of reads like the Walter White or Anakin Skywalker of, uh, of French history. Um, he was a national hero after World War I. His nickname was the Lion of Verdun. Um, he was really a soldier's soldier and one of the more successful commanders of the Western Front. Um, he was considered at the end of World War I as the most accomplished defensive tactician of any army and one of France's greatest military heroes. Um, in 1940, he was 84 years of age. Um, and though he publicly stated that he had no desire to become a Caesar, um, you know, Vichy France, which he subsequently headed, 
um, after the capitulation to Germany uh, resembled something close to a republican dictatorship. Uh, he had near absolute powers, uh, more power, some have suggested, than any, than any French leader since Louis XIV. Uh, um, and uh, the, Vichy, uh, the Vichy state was, was quasi-fascist. Um, but it seems that he had a different sense of duty to de Gaulle. Um, as I said, the critical moment, Pétain's Hamarsha seems to have occurred in 1940. Uh, Pétain was in Tours um, after the, the fall of Paris. Uh, the French government was provisionally in Tours before moving on to Bordeaux. They were having a they were having talks with the British, um, contemplating an alliance. And Pétain is on the record of having emphasized the need to stay in France, um, the need to prepare a national revival and to share the sufferings of the French people. Um, he thought it was impossible for the government to abandon French soil, um, you know, without without effectively deserting. Uh, he said that the duty of the government is, come what may, to remain in the country or it could no longer be regarded as the government. Um, so Pétain, for some reason, felt it was his duty to stay and suffer with his people and try to make the most um, of a bad situation, uh, whereas de Gaulle, um, in his eyes, was a deserter. And in fact, while de Gaulle was abroad, um, he was uh, sentenced to death in absentia. Um, you know, And there was something to this line of thinking. Uh, Roosevelt as I said earlier, wouldn't have much to do with de Gaulle uh, for the longest time. And initially, very few people heeded de Gaulle's call uh, for resistance from London. Uh, Vichy was the legal government, and it was recognized by the US, it was recognized by the USSR, it was recognized by the papacy even. Um, when Hitler met Pétain for the first time in 1940 to discuss the French government's role in a new European order, uh, Pétain uh, reportedly listened to Hitler in silence not once offering a sympathetic word for Germany. Um, symbolically, however, the handshake he offered to Hitler caused much uproar in London and probably influenced Britain's decision to lend a free French support. Um, from this moment on, in 1940, it's hard to like Pétain. Um, he ran the country on military lines. Uh, Vichy aspired to social hierarchy, rejecting the idea of the natural equality of men. Um, censorship was imposed and the freedom of expression and thought were effectively abolished uh, with the reinstatement of the crime of felony of opinion. Um, within Vichy France there existed also a co collaborationist armed militia known in French as the Milice, uh, which led a campaign of repression against the French resistance uh, which was called the Maquis. Um, the Milice was a political paramilitary organization and it was the Vichy's uh, most extreme manifestation of fascism. It participated in executions, torture, assassinations. It helped to round up Jews and uh, resistance in France for deportation. And uh, the subscription to the Milice in 1944 is estimated to having been close to 30,000 people. Uh, they even had a youth section, sort of equivalent to, the, to Hitler's youth, uh, called the avant-garde. Um, Pétain did try to distance himself from the crimes of the milice, but was told that he should have thought of that sooner. Um, Pétain's motives are a topic of wide conjecture. Um, Winston Churchill had spoken to the, uh, to the, to the French Prime Minister during uh, the impending fall of France, uh, having said of Pétain that he had always been a defeatist, um, even in the last war. You know, ultimately, Pétain, um, after the liberation of France, he was tried and convicted of treason, uh, but his death sentence was commuted 
Um, interestingly, Harry Truman interceded in vain for his release and even offered to provide political asylum in the U.S. to Pétain. Um, a lot of people pitied Pétain, uh, British royalty, uh, Harry Truman, as I said, uh, even General Franco in Spain, and a lot appealed for clemency. Um, why? I mean, this is an interesting question, and one that I, 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 I'm not sure where I stand. Um, Pétain attracted pity. Was it due to his age? Um, you know, was it due, I don't know, to, to some sort of misplaced sense of duty? Um, you know, the court is, the jury is out on that one. Um, de Gaulle wrote that Pétain's life was, quote, successfully banal, then glorious, then deplorable, but never mediocre, um, end quote. Uh, French society at this time seems to have been suffering from a form of schizophrenia. It was extremely partisan. Who were the surrender monkeys? Um, the soldiers who comprised the French army in 1940? In my opinion, no. De Gaulle and the Free French Forces? No. The Maquis and other uh, resistance? No. Pétain and other Vichy collaborators, however, yes, I would agree, were surrender monkeys. The Melis, certainly. Um, I suppose if you're the type of person who'd call a French person a surrender monkey, you'll always find some way of justifying it. But by the same logic, you'll always find a way of disputing it. Um, some of them were cheese-eating surrender monkeys and, s and some were not. And, you know, if there were surrender monkeys, to what extent is that owing to the effect of the previous war on the national spirit? Are the French unusual in this regard? Um, I doubt it. Um, you know, have you have you ever read the the novel or um, seen the TV series The Man in the High Castle, or uh, read about or or watched you know some of these famous um, social experiments such as the Stanford Prison um, or Milgram experiments? I mean, I believe we all have the capacity to behave in these. Uh, multifaceted ways as, as the French did uh, during the war. One really interesting anecdote I found I found I find is um, the existence of the uh, of the Waffen uh, Grenadier Brigade of the SS Charlemagne. Uh, this was a unit of the Waffen SS uh, formed in 1944 from French collaborationists, around 300 members of which participated in the battle in Berlin and were among the last Axis forces to surrender. And after Hitler's suicide, this unit's men were part of the last defenders in the area of uh, the bunker complex. What's tragic and what really makes this story compelling, um, like I said, it has all the hallmarks of tragic literature. It's that de Gaulle and Pétain, their r rivalry, their relationship, it had a very personal element. Um, the highly esteemed regiment that de Gaulle first joined uh, before the First World War, when he first came out of the, the War College, um, would eventually be commanded by Pétain. And de Gaulle followed him closely for the next 15 years, and he later wrote in his memoirs, um, quote, My first colonel, Pétain, taught me the art of command, end quote. Uh, de Gaulle's career was repeatedly aided by Pétain. Uh, from 1925, he worked for him um, as part of the Maison Pétain, this group of young officers who uh, surrounded uh, surrounded him. He worked uh, for him largely as a ghostwriter. He basically had been his amanuensis. De Gaulle disapproved of Pétain's decision to take command in Morocco in 1925 during the Reef War, um, and he was later known to have remarked that, uh, quote, Marshal Pétain was a great man. He died in 1925, but he did not know it. So earlier I said that 1940 sort of marked uh, the Hamarsha in Pétain's uh, story arc. Um, 
de Gaulle perhaps would uh, disagree with me and uh, say it occurred earlier in 1925. After 1938, they were no longer close. Um, de Gaulle's philosophy was one of action. He was a hawk. Uh, he certainly wasn't a surrender monkey. If de, if de Gaulle were American, Americans, I believe, would embrace him. There are even moments in his biography that just reminded me of Patton. Um, the real surrender monkeys were not de Gaulle nor the army that took on the Nazis in the Battle of France, uh, but the Vichyists and the collaborators of their ilk. De Gaulle was arrogant, autocratic, and perhaps ungrateful um, on occasion, but he was also a warrior and a patriot and ultimately a constitutionalist. He was his own man. He could be a small and petty man too. Um, perhaps he was xenophobic. Um, he was very nationalist uh, in the old sense of the world uh, of the word. Um, uh, he he was definitely a man of that moment in history of nation states. Um, one of his ministers um, later said of De Gaulle that he was quote a man equally incapable of monopolizing power as of sharing it. End quote, which is a an interesting distinction or contradiction in in his character. Um, during the 1960s, uh, some people were concerned um, that de Gaulle, when he returned to um, politics at the time of the Algerian War, um, that he would violate civil liberties. And de Gaulle retorted vehemently, Have I ever done that? On the contrary, I have re-established them when they had disappeared. Who honestly believes that at the age of 67 I would start a career as a dictator? Some historians feel that as Napoleon was the preeminent uh, Frenchman and French leader of the 19th century, de Gaulle um, is similarly the greatest uh, French leader of the 20th century, and others have remarked that he has entered the pantheon of great national heroes, um, where he even ranks ahead of Napoleon and behind only Charlemagne. <laughs> Is it justified to call the French surrender monkeys for having surrendered to the Germans after a mere six weeks? Does this fact belie an inherent failing in their national character? Conventionally, it's been seen as an abject national disgrace, and most historians have tended to focus on the shortcomings of the French armed forces. But there's also a revisionist school uh, to which I subscribe. Um, well, let's lay out the historical consensus for France's rapid collapse in 1940. It's true that when they saw which way the wind was blowing, the morale of the French leadership was broken. Um, this is probably exacerbated by ideological divisions in the preceding years. I know in the 1930s there were clashes in the streets between the far left and the far right, not very different, uh, worryingly enough, um, from today's world. Um, and the conventional thinking is that the French people, they were still haunted by World War I, they had little appetite for a fight, um, but some of these revisionist historians uh, seem to feel that this is, um, or has been overstated. More important were the fatally flawed Allied strategy. Um, as it turned out, tragically, uh, the Allies had planned to fight the previous war. I believe there's an old historical adage which says that everyone tends to plan for the previous war. Um, the poor performance of their intelligence services, their tactical disadvantage against the Germans' blitzkrieg or lightning war, the supremacy of the German Luftwaffe, and of course the role of chance. Um, Germany was actually underprepared for war. Um, they had a semi-modern army, 45 of 
45% of the personnel in its Army of the West was at least 40 years old. That's older than me. <laughs> 50% of all soldiers had just a few weeks training and were, weren't even combat ready. Um, it was far from motorized. I believe only 10% of their army was motorized in 1940, compared to 30% of the French army. Uh, in comparison, all of the British expeditionary forces motorized. And it was even less equipped uh, than it had been in 1914. Um, in 1933, I think Churchill, when, when Hitler rose to power, famously or publicly stated, thank God for the French army. Uh, it kind of underscores the, the trust or confidence other great powers had in the French army at that time. Uh, France had spent a higher percentage of its GNP in the interwar years on its military than the other great powers. There was a large rearmament effort in 1936. However, most of its strategy um, leaned towards the defensive rather than the offensive. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that point shortly, but um, a declining birth rate uh, in the interwar years coupled with the enormous number of war dead meant France had a shortage of men relative to its population. Yet even so, France managed to mobilize 5 million men in 1940. And to put that into perspective, the British only mobilized approximately 900,000, so that's fewer than a million. Um, and even in 1940, when the British managed to get more men in the field, it, it, it only rose to a little above 1.5 million. Um, the Dutch and the Belgians, uh, in comparison, uh, their manpower amounted to, to more or less half a million, respectively. Uh, the Maginot Line was intended to ec ec economize on this manpower and deter a German-French invasion uh, by diverting it into Belgium, uh, which could then be met by the best divisions of the French army. Um, the goal was to isolate combat beyond France's borders and thus avoid the destruction of the First World War. And the French were confident in these fortifications, as they'd reason to be, as we'll see. Um, but I guess you're only as strong as your weakest link, and uh, France had to contend with its soft belly that the Low Countries represented. Uh, as a neutral state, Belgium was reluctant to cooperate openly with France, and there was little coordination against the German offensive. Most of France's crack divisions were assembled along the Belgian border, in the expectation that it's through the Belgian border that the Germans would invade. Uh, Pétain, who we'll talk about briefly, because I believe in Pétain we do have a candidate for a cheese-eating surrender monkey. Um, more on that in a moment. But Pétain, just before the war, had declared the Ardennes, which is located at the centre of the French front, uh, to be quote-unquote impenetrable, provided that special provisions were made to destroy any invasion force as it emerged in the pincer attack. Um, the Ardennes forested region lay between the, the low countries and the, the Maginot Line, but they were traditionally thought to be um, impenetrable. Uh, the French commander-in-chief, Gamelin, is also on the record as having said that the area, quote, never favoured large operations, unquote. Uh, and even French war games in 1937 and 1938 considered a hypothetical German armoured attack through the Ardennes, but the army concluded that though in theory it was possible, the region was largely impenetrable and that they'd have sufficient time to organize a counterattack. Um, however, there was one general, a General Korap, who presently called it a quote-unquote idiocy to think that the enemy could not get through. But the French military commanders, this commander-in-chief Gamelin, ignored the evidence as it wasn't in line with his strategy. Okay, so is this an example of confirmation bias? Uh, did the, Germ uh, the French high command... Uh, <clears throat> did their hubris, um, you know, lead them to make a, a tragic error on their part? I mean, 
hubris, arrogance. It does fit in with some of some of the French stereotypes that you know I'm going to discuss. Uh, but the French weren't the only ones conducting war games. German war games at the same time also tested an offensive through the Ardennes and surmised that swift reactions couldn't be expected from the quote-unquote systematic French who made no provision for surprise and reacted slowly when one was sprung. Um, the result of the war games convinced the Germans, as it had the French, that in theory an Ardennes scheme could work, though many in reality expected it to fail. Um, it was only Hitler who pushed for this decisive armour breakthrough um, as it happened subsequently in the invasion of Poland. His generals were sceptical. They didn't think the same fast-moving mechanised tactics would work against a first-rate military um, such as the French had. Um, I believe the German officer corps even discussed the possibility of a coup d'etat, um, but doubted uh, the, the loyalty of, of their soldiers to them. On the whole, French, um, uh, French and Allied intelligence sources were better than the Germans, um, but their intelligence analysis wasn't uh, as well integrated into their planning or decision-making. Uh, I believe Allied intelligence had received word from several quarters that Germany was planning an offensive, but doubted their authenticity. Um, through intelligence reports, the Belgians had worked out that German forces were concentrating on the Belgium and Luxembourg frontiers, but, but their warnings were ignored. Similar warnings by the Swiss, as well as France's own aerial reconnaissance, uh, that the Germans were building pontoon bridges on the, the, the Luxembourg-German border, and a 100-kilometer-long tailback of German armoured vehicles were ignored. Um, they dismissed these as being secondary to the main attack on Belgium. Again, an example of perhaps of allied hubris. Um, wireless, that is radio, proved essential to German success in battle. Um, it facilitated the German army's blitzkrieg tactics as it allowed quicker improvisation. It enabled them to work together at a quick tempo, exploit opportunities faster than the Allies could react, and it also permitted communication between air and ground forces. Uh, though superior in many ways, most French tanks lacked radio, and uh, the Germans generally went out, of, went out of their way to avoid tank-on-tank -tank engagements. Um, whereas the French were, were trained in static formations, the Germans were trained for mobile action. They were also encouraged to use their initiative. Um, the Allies, by comparison, were encumbered by their slower top-down methods. Um, another decisive factor contributing to German success, um, and I suppose this can be summarized as the role of chance, was that certain Ger German tank commanders, Rommel and Guderian, uh, disobeyed orders to stop the westward advance, which Hitler thought was moving too fast. And despite the French inflicting many losses on Rommel's division, they couldn't cope um, with the speed of his advance, and speed was of the essence. Um, the French commander-in-chief Gamelin himself remarked that, quote, it was all a question of hours, unquote. The Luftwaffe was the most experienced, well-equipped and well-trained air force in the world. It had six times more medium bombers than the French, and the Germans had an advantage in anti-aircraft guns as well. Um, at the Battle of Sedan, the Luftwaffe executed the heaviest air bombardment the world had then witnessed, and the most intense by the Germans during the war. And it is true that on this occasion, the morale of the troops um, was broken and French gunners fled. Uh, the French Ninth Army uh, subsequently surrendered en masse. Um, but despite these disadvantages, the German uh, Air Force is considered to have performed far better than expected in the Battle of France. All of these factors led to a sense of defeatism on the, on the part of the French leaders. When Churchill traveled to Paris to bolster their morale, he found them preparing to abandon the capital, um, to abandon Paris. And he learned that there was no strategic reserve, unlike in the First World War. Um, Churchill later described hearing this as the most shocking moment in his life. Apparently, when he asked Gamelin where and when he planned to launch a counteroffensive, 
Gamelin merely replied, quote, inferiority of numbers, inferiority of equipment, inferiority of methods, unquote. The terrible irony is that some of the best Allied units in the North had seen little fighting as they'd been kept in reserve for such a decisive counterattack. Ultimately, despite having a numerically superior armoured force, the French failed to use it properly. And to make matters worse, France also had to deal with an exodus of millions of civilian refugees that clogged all the roads. Um, an estimated 6 to 10 million civilians fled. Uh, to the credit of the French, in the course of the German second offensive southwards towards Paris, the Wehrmacht encountered much stronger resistance from a, a rejuvenated French army. The French officers were beginning to gain tactical experience against German mobile units and had generally more confidence in their weapons. Um, after two days, the German offensive had yet to break through, and at Amiens, the Germans were repeatedly driven back by French artillery fire, um, and German progress was only short with air, sh air support. Uh, German sources acknowledged that this battle was hard and costly in lives. That's a direct quotation. And that the enemy put up severe resistance, um, even beyond the point of resistance. And they even noted the improved tactics of the French, who were learning how to respond to the German blitzkrieg. Um, Paris was declared an open city. Um, it's true. But it wasn't surrendered without a shot. As Goldberg in his article suggests, the French did strongly resist the approaches of the German army as it deployed against the city with the line broke in several places. Um, at an Anglo-French Supreme War Council at Tours, a Franco-British Union was proposed but refused by the French. This might have saved them. Um, again, is this another example of French hubris? The Maginot line did collapse, but the Germans found the battle difficult and progress slow due to the strong French resistance. Uh, when most French units did surrender, um, the Germans uh, took half a million prisoners. Um, and although most French units surrendered, some, some main fortresses continued to fight despite appeals for surrender. And the last only capitulated on the 10th of July and uh, only then under protest. Um, the fact is the Maginot Line did its job. Um, the Battle of the Alps is little known, uh, when in a two-week battle the French Army of the Alps mostly repelled a numerically superior Italian army. Um, ultimately, Hitler had better insight uh, into the Allied governments than they had of him and uh, knew they were reticent to go to war. Uh, he played Chamberlain and the Ladier like a fiddle, though I wouldn't condemn Chamberlain for doing everything in his power to assure peace in his time. Um, Hitler was surprised when they did declare war, uh, realizing he had underestimated them. Uh, the historian Ernest May speculates that the French and British could have defeated Germany in 1938 with Czechoslovakia as an ally, and also in late 1939 when German forces in the West were incapable of preventing a French occupation of the Ruhr, uh, which would have forced a capitulation uh, or a futile German resistance uh, in a war of attrition. And May further asserted that despite Allied mistakes, the Germans couldn't have succeeded uh, but for outrageous luck. And on the subject of luck and chance, Mark Bloch, in his book, uh, published just after the, the, the fall of France, uh, a book, uh, a short book called Strange Defeat, referred to the German victory as a quote-unquote triumph of intellect, which depended on Hitler's quote-unquote methodical opportunism. Um, the British chiefs of staff um, estimated that if France collapsed, that they would not be able to continue the war with any chance of success. Uh, unless they had full economic and financial support from the US. This just goes to show the strength of the German uh, threat 
and that it wasn't just France that uh, responded poorly to it. Uh, eventually, in 1944, when the French First Army embarked in Provence during Operation de Grune, its leading unit became the first Western Allied unit to reach the Rhone, the Rhine, and the Danube. And by 1944, the French Liberation Army had grown from half a million to 1.3 million by uh, victory in Europe Day, uh, making it the fourth largest Allied army in Europe. And by this token, um, I believe, earned its position at the negotiating table. Uh, the truth is that in many places, the French fought hard and bravely and put the Germans in real difficulty. Um, of the 3,000 tanks the Germans deployed, 1,800 were put out of action. Of the 3,500 planes, um, the Germans lost 1,600. And during the course of a month of fighting, the Germans lost 50,000 dead and more than 160,000 wounded. It was, uh, it was proper combat. Um, on one level, surrender monkeys is a funny, um, albeit perhaps xenophobic quip for Anglo-Americans to express their disdain for the French. But I believe much of this disdain um, is based on a misunderstanding of history and uh, an unwillingness to consider events from a French perspective. Uh, on a more serious level, though, it is a slur on the courage of individual French soldiers and airmen who were really the first resistant to the Nazi incursion and who unfortunately had the misfortune of being their, their next-door neighbor. The idea that the French military lacked fighting spirit uh, is, I think, misplaced and offensive. Um, according to Guderian, this is a quotation, this is a, an opinion he expressed about his, uh, his French enemy, quote, Despite the major tactical errors of the Allied command, the soldiers put up an obstinate resistance with a spirit of sacrifice worthy of the poilus, who are the, the French uh, infantry soldiers of World War I, of 1916, end quote. And Rommel um, is on the record of having written, quote, The colonial troops fought with extraordinary determination. The anti-tank th teams and tank crews performed with courage and caused serious losses, end quote. Um, there have been calls for a National Day of Commemoration to honour the estimated 90,000 French dead in the Battle of France, but at present there is no physical memorial for these men and their stories rarely told. Um, their fate has been described as a denial of memory that verges on the taboo. So let's talk about French geography here for a moment. Um, France is possibly one of the best position, best positioned countries in Europe. Um, it has, you know, several fertile river, river valleys uh, in the Loire and the Rhone and the Seine. And uh, it has actually the Atlantic Ocean to its west, uh, the, the Sleeve or the English Channel, depending on which country you're born in, uh, to its north. Uh, it has the Pyrenees in the south and the Alps in the southeast. So it actually only has really one avenue for invasion, uh, one easy avenue for invasion, um, and that's coming from uh, through Belgium, from Germany there in the northeast of France. So my question I wanted to ask you is, had the French extended the Maginot Line um, across Belgium all the way to the Channel, would that have possibly led to them lasting longer or even stopping the Germans? Uh, or was the Wehrmacht just um, totally unstoppable, in your opinion? I think it was likely stoppable. Um, you know, my my totally uninformed amateur opinion as a as a armchair general, but I think uh, I can I can understand the logic of the military planners of the time. 
um, well, first of all, my, it was probably difficult to build uh, the Maginot Line or extend the Maginot Line along the sovereign territory of, of, the, of the Low Countries. Um, the Low Countries themselves had, um, you know, uh, sufficient militaries. Um, I think that the thinking was, you know, if we keep our crack troops in the north of France to repel a potential invasion, um, we will have time to coordinate a counterattack um, due to the fact that uh, Belgium and Luxembourg and Holland, um, you know, are sort of buffers, and uh, the British expeditionary forces too had an agreement to 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 come in and intercede in in the case of a in the event of a German invasion. I think they thought that they were covered. Um, the Maginot Line, the Maginot Line was was actually very formidable. They were like ultra ultra forts, system of tunnels and highly defensive forts. And even those who would have preferred, even those French generals and military commanders who would have preferred greater investment in the, the French army's offensive capabilities in the 30s, like Pétain um, and de Gaulle, uh, they were actually quite prescient um, about tank warfare. De Gaulle was calling for greater motorized tank um, sort of capability in the 1930s and um, and Pétain too. I guess the, the one thing they didn't they didn't invest enough thought into was the the role an air force would play, um, but uh, even they remarked, uh, uh, you know, remarked about the the strength, especially Pétain, who had seen um, the efficacy of uh, fortifications um, along the front in in battles such as the Battle of Verdun in World War One. Um, they certainly dropped the ball um, by neglecting to seriously consider an attack through the Ardennes. Hitler's decision to, to, to push through the Ardennes, that he went up against all his own commanders in the Wehrmacht. I mean, like like I said earlier, uh, they even considered mutinying against Hitler. They thought it was foolhardy. Um, and so did all uh, military theorists at the time. Nobody could have foreseen that, although they should have. Um, during the war games, they demonstrated that it was possible. Um, but again, they felt that they would have had enough time to to um, mount a counterattack. Um, but they failed to do it because of the Blitzkrieg tactics, which the, the French military were unprepared for, um, ultimately because their, their investment in the 1930s and 20s had largely to do with a defense um, rather than offense. Um, but, I, but I do, to answer your question, think that the German invasion could have been stopped. But these are counterfactuals. I mean, yeah, in theory, they could have been, it could have been stopped. But I mean, you would, you would have had to, had, had to have had a lot of foresight in order to rally the necessary um, um, you know, will on the part of the British and the French to, you know, to to husband their resources and, uh, you know, and rethink their strategies, um, you know. And also, you know, there is some truth to the fact that, you know, at this time, you know, morale was, was, was relatively low. People did not have the appetite. Even if the morale question is overstated and the French morale wasn't so badly impacted, they still had a fighting spirit, um, as can be seen by the, the fact that, it did, that they did put up a good fight against the Germans. Um, but, you know, morale had had been low due to the lack of an appetite for another war. Um, I mean, I think you said previously that, you know, a lot of people regard these two wars as, in fact, one war, a 30-year war. Um, it was basically a lull between 
two engagements and um, a lot of military leaders at the time you know knew that a, another engagement um, would would be and was inevitable All right, Tim, let's get uh, off the fence here. Uh, let's let's have out with it. The French surrender monkeys or not? No, I'm going to say they're not surrender monkeys. Uh, I'm going to say that they were uh, in the most unfortunate position of all the al- allied powers or all the, the major allied powers that were expected not to surrender um, in, in World War II. And I think that I think that world the 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 surrender in in the battle of france uh and the subsequent uh occupation nazi occupation of france is the reason why this joke or this epithet um exists for the french and 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 i think that it's undeserved however i just want to add that i do think that the french can be a little arrogant and uh i think that they sometimes um don't quite understand what all the other allied powers went through to to liberate France. And sometimes the French might even say that, yeah, the Allies liberated France, but that was just because they were trying to beat Germany. They didn't actually care about the French or the French people. I think Americans in particular can't empathize with the French um, with respect to World War II because, I mean, their their experiences were not comparable. Um, and the fact that America has never really faced never faced really essentially uh, a significant land threat no we never have um or risked any serious prospect of invasion but i think if you fast forward 10 years uh to the 1950s in vietnam where the french surrendered at the battle of dien bien phu right there you have a historical confluence where you have a french invasion to a uh, a french surrender to a foe to a superior foe in this case and america quickly picks up the dropped French baton and they themselves wage a war in Vietnam, which they do not win. We subsequently lose in what is a probably the worst war in American history, the Vietnam War, I think. Except, I mean, if you talk about American death, it's the Civil War. But I mean, in terms of the most pointless, humiliating, uh, violent and just barbaric war, it's got to be the war in Vietnam. So faced with a common foe, in a reasonably relatively similar situation the americans didn't uh, didn't uh, fare much better than the french yeah i think it's absolutely right and um although i you know i just i've lived in france for 9 years and i do think the french can be arrogant of course any anyone can be arrogant from any country but i think the french can be particularly arrogant however i think that that arrogance can actually be uh, a plus for the French. It can be sort of historically that arrogance has been um, an asset to the French because for any American or, or or Brit or anyone who wants to say the French are a bunch of cheese eating surrender monkeys, I if if the setting is appropriate and if it's not too too much of a, a geeky thing to say, I would really want to geek out with them on how awesome the French military has been throughout its history. I mean, we're talking about um by far the greatest land power for centuries on end in europe the the winningest most dominant um uh really most um 
formidable land power in Europe, right? Am I right when I say that? Yeah, yeah I think you're correct. And uh, I would agree that they eat a lot of cheese. Okay, the cheese eating is, is spot on. Surrender monkeys, uh, less so. Um, my, 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 my real issue with that, with that, you know, Simpsons quotation used as a slur on the French character is the fact that it's, 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 it's a genetic argument, you know. You know, accusing them of this moral weakness, which we, you know, we can we can sit here as we have and and discuss, you know, the the strengths and weaknesses of the French military uh, or French military campaigns at various points in history. But to say that the French character is fundamentally different to other human characters and that they have a pre, you know a predilection for surrendering, I think, is just absurd. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think uh, genetics are. Genetics, when you're talking about an individual person, are relevant and important. But when you're talking about a whole nation, um, they're they're basically irrelevant. Now, culture is another question, um, and culture I think is huge. Uh, especially some some cultures are clearly more militaristic than others. Um, if you want to compare, I don't know, Sri Lankans to uh, to Mongolians or something like that, I think you would find that you know steppe people or um, people who live in harsher climates uh, are, are more more aggressive, more violent, more milar- militaristic, perhaps than people who live in uh, nice sunny islands with plenty of fish and alcohol to go around. But to, but to be devil's advocate, um, as an Irishman, this may not be a popular um, thought experiment for any Irish listeners out there. But you know, it's it's interesting, or it's noteworthy that the Irish have a reputation as a fighting people you know, for Americans, you know, the fighting Irish, Notre Dame, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that little, you know, leprechaun that I think Conor McGregor has tattooed on, on himself. Um, but when you think about it, I mean, you know, we had been defeated by and large for a very long time by a superior, you know, entity, a superior state. And uh, all of our rebellions failed until the most recent in the in the early 20th century. Yet we have... The, the opposite reputation is the French in the American imagination. Um, you know, do we deserve that? How come the French, you know, after one defeat, two defeats in the 20th century has a reputation of cowardice, whereas the Irish, who had been repeatedly defeated through centuries, um, have the have the contrary reputation as uh, as fighters? Because what we were doing was no different than what the Gaul, what the Gaul was doing and the French forces were doing. We kept fighting. And, uh, you know, we weren't tamed and we, we eventually, you know, earned our independence. Um, but that's not terribly different to, to what the goal was doing in World War II. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just a question of, or it's a case of the French losing uh, at the wrong place and, or being in the wrong place at the wrong time and thus losing in uh, a very short time period to a very strong foe. And... Um, you know, it happened right on the cusp of a huge wave of globalization that we saw in the second half of the 20th century with uh, movies and TV and music, uh, primarily from America, but also from Europe and elsewhere, um, becoming popular and, and The Simpsons being one of them. Yeah, and like you said earlier, it's not like they lost to a vastly inferior foe. I mean, they they did technically have the stronger military and were on the, the better footing before the the Germans invaded them, but uh, I mean, we're talking about an enemy that uh, <laughs> I mean, what what they achieved 
in their conquest was unparalleled in history. I mean, they wiped the floor with basically everyone. Um, unparalleled, except for when the French did it uh, 150 years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true enough, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like in all things, an alliance of nations will will take you down, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think a solid no for me with the caveat of French arrogance and for you. And a solid no from me with the caveat that they do like to eat a lot of cheese. <laughs> but so do I. 